So God used language that we are familiar with. Why? Because he has to deal with us. He condescends himself to our level and use our language to communicate who he is and how he relates to us. Today, I, for some reason, I printed half of my, paper, my notes. So hopefully, um, thank God I had my computer with me. I don't like to do this with computers, even though I use computers every day. But yeah, so I'm going to start with the computer and see maybe halfway through I can switch to the papers, uh, to my notes. Um, but today, again, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. I was going to do a sermon in Revelation, and I'm like, let me finish with that uh, section of um, Hebrews 9, um, and maybe another time I can do Revelation. Um, but Hebrews chapter 9, um, verse 15 to 22. We're going to read that portion of Scripture, and we can pray, and we can dive in. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15. Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, all the people by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the law almost everything. Sorry. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessel used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for redemption. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the death and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of his blood, we would not be forgiven of our sin. So today, Lord, as we dive into this uh, new covenant and how um, the author of Hebrews presented to us, Lord, we want to um, get this truth and apply them in our life and trust in you and persevere until the end. This letter was written to Christians who wanted to go back to the old ways, but Lord, your word is here to, uh, today for our encouragement, Lord. So use it and apply it in our heart. 
for the building of your people and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon is The New Covenant is a Last Will and a Testament. So that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Um, basically, he compares the new, te- the new covenant with a last will and a testament, right? Where do I see that? It's from verse 16. Verse 16 says this, For where a will is involved, other translations say where, it, where a testament is involved. And actually, this verse kind of gives us uh, the, the two testament we have in the Bible because of this verse and another verse in Galatians. People start talking about the Bible being the, made of the Old and the New Testament. But yeah, so the author says like um, where there is a will, where there is a testament, and um, yeah, there must be death. So God, um, throughout scriptures, uh, uses languages um, that we are familiar with to talk to us. Um, he, he takes example in our day-to-day lives. He takes experience that we, um, we are acquainted with to share truth with us, to share truth about who he is, um, how he relates to us. But sometimes the languages used are kind of weird, or we, 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 we get shocked. Like, for example, the new covenant is a last will and a testament. Um, when you think of a last will, someone dies, and the, they leave their inheritance for their children, for their families. Um, um, so God used language that we are familiar with. Why? Because he has to deal with us. He condescends himself to our level and use our language to communicate who he is and how he relates to us. So that's what happened in this passage. The, 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 uh, the author of Hebrews, to the, um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using language like a will, a testament, some, an inheritance to convey what happened in the new covenant for the believers. Um, so I, I want to answer three questions in this uh, message today. The first one, um, who writes the testament? Or in the, the language of um, the lawyers, who is the testator, like the person who writes it? The second question I want to answer is, who executes the testament? And the third question, who is the beneficiary or who are the beneficiaries of that will and testament. So before we continue, I would like to um, um, remind you of a few things because we need to define some of the terms so we can get acquainted with them. Um, things that you, you know already. Um, uh, if, I've, if you've been following me in the book, if I haven't lost you yet, uh, you should like be acquainted with these terms, right? So we have uh, mediator, we have covenant, we're going to define what is a will and a testament, a last will and a testament. Um, Yeah. 
But before we define those terms, um, let's read verse 15 real quick. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, the author is giving us a reason. Why is Jesus a mediator of the new covenant, of a new covenant? And I think that part of it is answered in verse 15, the second clause of verse 15. It says, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Christ came and redeemed us from the transgressions um, committed under the uh, first covenant. Now, we are under the new covenant, right? Why would Christ redeem us from something belonging to the old covenant? Simply put, it's like all men is guilty before God. Um, the law kept everybody shot, the Bible says in Romans. Like, we are all under the law of God, and we are all um, we are sinners. And without Christ, we would be um, forever in debt um, to God. We could, not, could never repay such a debt, right? But some of the answer is also found in the pre- preceding verse, in verse 14. Actually, I'm going to read verse 13 and 14 together because they go together. Um, verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, a defiled persons with, uh, of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's a female cow, right? Um, Sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from, the, from dead works to serve the living God? So the author is saying Christ um, is the mediator of that new covenant because he did something for us. What did he do? He cleared our conscience from dead works. Old Testament is dead works. And they were, they were for the uh, washing of the flesh. But Christ, his sacrifice, washes clean our soul. We have a clear conscience. We can come before the Father uh, with a clear conscience. So in verse 14, uh, three things I want us to quickly um, note. The first one, he compares the new covenant and says Christ is uh, mediator of a better covenant. He says, how much more with the blood of Christ? So the sacrifice of Christ is compared with the Old Testament sacri- sacrifices, and Christ's sacrifice is better. The second thing, um, Christ clear our conscience, but the Old Covenant sacrifice, they were for the washing of the flesh. In order for you to become, uh, to draw near God, you need to be ritually clean. And you see there are laws about when if you, if you touch a dead person, you cannot come into the camp. You have to wash yourself. You have to be in a certain stance before God into, in order to go into the camp and be accepted. If there is a gecko or like if you touch, I don't know, dung or whatever you touch, like if it puts you unclean, there are rituals and washing that you need to do in order to be in the presence of God. But when it comes to sin... You have to kill an animal. But when you kill that animal, the, the guilt of sin still stains your soul. So you need Christ 
until Christ came, everybody, like, they had this guilt, um, and their conscience was not free of that guilt. But with Christ, he came and washed our conscience free of all guilt. All victory in Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So that's, that's what we have in Jesus. So that's the second thing with this verse. The third thing in this verse, there is something. If you read carefully verse, 13, verse 14, I want you to see the three persons of the Godhead at work here. Brother Reese was talking about uh, the Trinity and talking about the second person of the Trinity. But see, verse 14, one more time. How much more with the blood of Christ, second person of the Trinity, who through the eternal spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Trinity, offered himself without blemish to God, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, the one triune true God. So the blood of Christ um, purify our heart so we can serve the one true God, but the Godhead is at work in our salvation. The Godhead is, from the beginning, is the author of our salvation and our redemption. All right. So that being said, let's go to our definitions. Let's start by defining a few words, and then we're going to try to answer um, all these three questions I had earlier. Um, the last will and, te- and testament of God, we're going to look into it and see how we can apply the truth to ourselves. So the first um, definition we're going to look at, a mediator. Children, what is a mediator? Or parents, you can tell them. So uh, if you go on Google and you make a quick search, um, the, the first result I had was from the Oxford Dictionary. Like He returns this, a person who attempts to make people involved in the conflict come to an agreement. So someone who goes in between, so they call, that, they call them go-between person. Um, someone who mediates, like link two people together. The second definition I have from uh, Miriam Webster, it says one that works to effect reconcil- reconciliation. So it's someone who reconciles two parties. Uh, they work settlement or compromise between part- parties. It can be compared to an ar- ar- arbitrator. So someone like a referee. So it's someone who call party A, party B, come to a compromise and work together. Sometimes when you go to, uh, you apply for a job, they ask you, have you ever been in a conflict? How did you resolve the conflict? Sometimes they, in, in those conflict situation, in those situations, they bring a mediator. Um, that happened to me one time, uh, but we resolved the problem. Um, but one mistake we can do is sometimes the way we understand the word mediator, um, there can be a danger in that. What am I saying? Um, there is no common ground between a God, holy God, and sinful men. For the fact that God is holy, 
he cannot compromise his holiness. God cannot violate his attributes. But he wants to redeem us. He wants us to go into relationship with him. So we have Jesus. And outside of Jesus, there is no one who can reconcile you with God. Mary cannot reconcile you. Joseph Smith cannot reconcile you. The Pope cannot reconcile you. Your works cannot reconcile you. Jesus is the mediator who, who can um, reconcile you with God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So, as a mediator, Christ says, the Father requires wrath for sin, so I'm going to receive that wrath. The Father um, requires a sacrifice. I'm going to become the sacrifice. But also, the, the Father requires there is death. So Jesus put on flesh, became the sacrifice, and died for our sin. No compromise on the holiness of God, not whatsoever. But he satisfies all the requirements of Jesus, of God the Father, and be our represent before God, our, be our representative before God. All right, so that's the word mediator. So children is someone who reconciles two person or two people, okay? They go in between two people, okay? They make them friends. They were enemies, they make them friends, okay? That's a mediator. Second definition, covenant. I use that word a lot in Hebrews. What is a covenant? They say, like, we enter in the uh, marital covenant. Simply put, a covenant is a contract. You make a contract with, a, with someone, and you say, we're going to work this way. So God, he made arrangements with his people and say, this is how I'm going to bless you. And this is my requirements for you um, to obey me, to follow me, and you're going to receive the blessings. If you don't obey me, you don't follow me, you're going to receive the curses. That's what the old covenant. So a covenant is a way for God to enter into relationship with his people. And now, verse 15, if you go back to verse 15, he says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Third question, where do we find a new covenant? If you're a good student of your Bible, you know it's in Jeremiah 31, 31, okay? But the author of Hebrew repeats it here for us. He says, um, if you flip back in Hebrews 8, verse 10, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the problem in the Old Covenant, God gave them laws. The laws were written on tablet of stone. When God met Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai, he wrote the law on tablets of stone, and God said, obey this law. You know, you and I, when we hear a commandment, what do we do? We retaliate. 
I don't want to do that. Imagine your, your kid, you tell, you tell them, don't touch this grill. It's hot. We're, we're flipping burgers. It's hot. The first thing they want to do is like, I want to touch it. They touch it. Ah, I'm burned. It happened to me. My mom told me. I, she, she told me that happened to me. Don't play with this outlet. You're going to get zapped. No. I put the knife in there. I got zapped. And yeah, he was fun. She said it was fun. But that was, I told that's what we do. When we hear the law, we don't want to obey it. Our flesh just turn around and want to do the exact opposite because it's outside. At companies like Tesla, they have um, um, press. They take like sheets of metal and they press them and give them shape. So the law is kind of like a press machine. They, it wants to shape you into the will of God. But it's this thing outside of you that's press, pressing you, drumming over your head, and there is this resistance. You don't want to do it. There is, mm, you, I don't want to do that. That's how we, uh, we are in our flesh. That's how we relate to the law. Um, even in Romans 7, Paul says, uh, verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit of death. We see the law. We said, I don't want it. But what happened? When you disobey God, you receive the consequences. You die. For the wages of sin is death. Okay. That's one. So the new covenant, what happened? God says, okay, this law, which is righteous, which is good, I'm going to write it on your heart, no longer on tablet of stone, but inside you, because we have an inner problem. We have a sin nature problem. Sin is inside. The law is out there. It's at war with the law, but what God does with the new birth, he gives you a new heart and take his pen, write the law on your heart. Now what happens? You want to obey God. God says, Love me, you love him. God says, do not lie. You don't want to lie. Why? Because you have God. Because the law is in your heart and you want to do his will. So that's one part of the new covenant. The second part of the new covenant, if you read um, verse 12 in chapter 8, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So the second thing that God does he forgives your sin. He removes your guilt. He writes the law on your heart. Also, forgive your sin and remove your guilt. That's why we can worship God with a clear conscience. Christ washed our con conscience uh, clean. All right. We're going to go in verse 16. But before we, we do that, let's define uh, Last will and testament. That's the last definition for today. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, I heard it's important to write a will. If you're like an adult, like write your will. I heard it's good for you. Otherwise, the state going to take tax from, from your estate, and it's never good. But Okay, children, again, what is a will? What is a last will and a testament? Okay? A last will and a testament is a document. Something that you write, okay? Um, and someone say, 
This is what I want to happen with the things I possess, Let, uh, with my possessions, okay? So let's say Brother uh, Chris, he has a mansion, right? And he said, okay, I'm going to give my mansion to KK. I'm going to give my bank account to Brooklyn and the car to Canon. Okay, so someone write the paper and say, this is how I want to distribute my possessions, my assets, okay? So usually it's in writing, and nothing for Miss Cassie. Cassie got the best, I didn't say it. <laughs> but I, this is an example, examples are not, never perfect. Um, but. Usually, like, the, the, the will needs to be in writing. You have to write it, and someone needs to, like, validate someone from, like, let's say, a lawyer. They need to say, yes, this is good. And you need to have two or three witnesses with you, okay? And the plan of God is so perfect. Like, when I'm defining this, I'm like, God designed the new covenant such a way that it looks like a last will and testament, and it's just perfect. Only a perfect God can come up with the perfect plan. But if we continue uh, with the definition, um, so someone um, can, so the, 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 the will becomes effective when you die. But someone else, you're going to say, um, I'm my, my will, I want someone to become the executioner. So let's say Chris says, I want, Miss Cassie to become the executioner. She's the one who's going to distribute the, the, the assets. All right. Um, and the people who receive the, the, assets, the, the, the asset, assets, they are the beneficiaries. So they receive the, I don't know, the mansion, the bank account, the car, everything. Okay? So why does the author of Hebrews um, compare the new covenant with a last will and a testament. Let's read verse 16 and verse 17. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So why this weird comparison? I'd call it weird because um, I would never think of will. Like, because someone said, I'm going to die and I'm going to leave my possession to um, people I want to. So did God say, I'm going to die and I'm going to leave my possession to the people I want to. Um, it's kind of weird this way. Like, God doesn't talk like that. God is eternal, right? But I think there is, there is good ground. Um, the first reason, I think, is because the word itself. The word uh, translated as will is the same word as covenant, is the same word as testament. So, and when, when you look at the Greek, like they said, in all um, the uh, records, this word always used for last will and a testament. Someone say, I'm going to give my possession to X, Y, or Z. So, but why, be, be, beside the definition of the word, why the author is t 
talking about, you know, this is a last will. This is a testament. Second reason. When you think of the new covenant, it came into effect when? When Jesus died. And a will become into effect when someone dies. The one who wrote the will dies. So that's the second point. Now, the third point, the third reason why I think the author is thinking this way, in the old covenant, right? Even you give the reason here. Let's read verse 18 and 19 real quick. He says this. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been given by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of cows and goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So he's saying like the new covenant, there was death. The old covenant, there was also death. There is reference of sacrifices and blood and um, sprinkle the temple, sprinkle the people. It's death. Why? Death is at the center of life. In order for you to have the, benefit, the benefits of Christ, there needs to be death. But in the Old Testament, they were pointing to Christ. Christ did not come yet. But they were saying, someone's going to die in order for you to receive the blessings and benefit of Christ. So therefore, it was also pointing to a will. Something needs to die in order for the will of God to take effect of someone needs to die. Are you with me so far? Cool. Number four, there is the use of the word inheritance. The moment you start talking about inheritance, you think about a will. Let's say I call my family. I'm, I'm like, I have my mom at home. I have my brothers, sisters. And I'm like, okay, mom, we need to talk about the inheritance. My mom would be like, are you trying to kill me? Or like, are you trying to tell me that I'm going to die? Or something like that, right? So she, death is already like in the back of her mind. And people are thinking, okay, you need to write something down so we don't fight over what you have, right? So the word inheritance brings to your mind Something is going to die. Someone needs to write a will. And um, the last thing, I think it's in the mind of the author, is that I told you when I was defining the word will, the person who writes the will, he doesn't consult anyone, right? If I'm writing a will, I don't have to tell my children, hey, I'm going to write a will. What do you want me to write down for you? There is no such thing. I, by myself, write the will, and someone look at it, it's good, and it's there until I die, and someone comes and execute the will. So it's just one-sided decision made by someone. Going back to verse 14, I told you redemption is by who? By the triune God. So God, before the foundation of the world, decided I'm going to serve a people for myself, and I'm going to do it my way. And they're not going to change my will. There is no negotiation between you and God to say, God, give me this. I don't want that because this is too hard. This is too easy. I want the easy part. No. God, before the foundation of the world, chose, decided how he's going to 
uh, um, unfold this plan of salvation. All right. Now let me answer the questions. Who, is, who wrote the testament? I just said it. God. Okay? God answered it. God wrote it. When did he write it? I just said it earlier. Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance. I'm sorry. Ephesians 1.11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. You see, before destiny. Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things all things according to the counsel of his will. So God has a will. He said, I'm going to do this before the world even started. The word predestined, um, who are predestined, or when, verse 4 in Ephesians 1, even he, as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So you see, God, he wrote this will this testament before the world was even created. Okay, that question I said earlier that can sound um, weird. Um, did God write a, a last will and testament knowing that one day he would want to die and have his possession taken by someone else? First of all, God is a spirit, Christian. Uh, a catechism I, ha I used to like have at, uh, at home with the kids. Who is God? God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. So God cannot die. So how can the immortal, invisible, all kings of the ages, the God, the only wise God, how can he die? He cannot, right? So in a sense, like, how can that happen? How can that happen? So God cannot die. So this is the plan of God. I want you to read with me Hebrews 2, verse 14. We, we went through that passage way back. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That means he, talking about Jesus, partook in the flesh and blood. So Jesus Christ the, became flesh. The second person of the Trinity became flesh so that um, he says, through death he might destroy the one who has power over death. That is the devil. So imagine it this way. In eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they said, we want to destroy death. This is the plan. This is my will. God the Father says, I want to destroy death because the devil is going to be in rebellion against me. He's going to try to lure people away from me. I want to destroy death. How can I do that? And God said, I want to taste death. Why? So I can destroy death from within. Destroy death from within. 
And the son says, I want to go and do your will. If you're going to see that in, in, in Hebrews 10, um, Jesus said, prepare a body for me. So Christ, he said, I want to become flesh. This is the mystery of the incarnation. That's why Christ had to come into this flesh. Why? So he can taste death for everyone. So he can die. The end result, the will of God will be this. Death will be destroyed. God will destroy death by tasting death. And that's the will of God. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, they came up with this plan of redemption. And 2,000 years ago, Christ came. He became flesh. He walked on this earth for 33 years and died on the cross. All right. The second question I want to answer. We saw who wrote the plan. It's God. And the way he, um, the plan is Christ is going to become flesh and die so that he can destroy death. Now, I told you, when, after the death of someone, someone needs to execute the will. Who is the executioner of the will? Jesus. This, that's what I was saying. It's weird. I cannot be the executioner of my will because when I'm dead, I'm dead, right? I don't have life anymore. I cannot say, I don't know. Death can't say anything. Dead men can't say anything. So someone else needs to execute the will. But in God's plan, in God's design, Christ is the executioner. So this is the difference. By his death, the will of God became effective. So, you know, like when I die, my will become effective. Someone can now say, take the paper, start distributing. But Christ... That's what he did. By his death, the will of God became effective. Now we can receive the inheritance. We can receive the blessings of God. But by his resurrection, he became the executioner. He, he rose again so that he can give us gifts. Ephesians 4.11 says he ascended and gave gifts to the church, pastors, uh, and all the different gifts. So when Christ rose again from the dead, he became the one who executes the will of God. Um, Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. Um, in Haiti, like when they use this verse a lot, because in the church, um, the way they do their service, there is the last benediction. So some churches, they do that. But usually the pastor or the deacon would come and, okay, let's... Bow your head for the benediction, and they would find one of the doxology te texts, or they would use this text. So let's read Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. This word, by the blood of the eternal covenant, this is how God raised Jesus from the dead. There is value in the death of Jesus Christ, and God says, you shed your blood, I'm going to raise you so that you can execute my will. And how does that will is executed? To equip you with everything good 
that you may do his will. So God enables you to do his will. This is one of the benefits we have from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can do his will because the law is written on your heart because now you, you're not at odds with God anymore. You are his child. You want to do his will. May the Lord equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight to Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So God rose, uh, resurrected Christ from the dead and said, Christ, give gifts, give this inheritance to my people. The last portion, the last question I want to answer, who are the beneficiaries of the will? And it's here back in verse 15, Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called, those who are called, may receive the promise eternal inheritance. So who are the beneficiaries of the will and testament of God? The ones who are called. The church is called the called out ones. So you and I, we are the beneficiaries of the gifts of the inheritance of God. And people might say, this is talking about predestination. This is talking about the golden chain of salvation, whom he predestined. No. You don't have to worry about this. Today, if you are someone like you thinking, I'm like, if you hear my voice today, do not, hand, do not harden your heart as in rebellion. The, the call of God goes out to everyone. Our responsibility is to answer in faith, answer in obedience. Um, people, my, I remember people, one of my sister-in-law, she got stumbled over the doctrine of um, predestination. Don't let that be a hinder to you. If you hear the voice of God calling you today, do not hinder your heart. Come to him. Heart. Do not hinder your heart. Come to him in repentance and faith. Why? He says, verse 15 again, you may receive the the promised eternal inheritance. Simply put, inheritance is all the blessings and uh, benefit we receive from God, from salvation. Jesus said, I'm going to be with you. So you're going to be comforted. Even if, it, if it's hard, even if, if it, you don't know what's going to come tomorrow, Christ is with you, and that's enough. That's a comfort you have. You will not taste death. He will raise you on the last day. There is blessing. There are blessings um, when you respond to the call of God. So the person who hears God's voice and answers that call, he's the one who received the inheritance of God. There is this last verse, verse 22. Uh, I want to I wanna briefly say this. Indeed, under the, uh, the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. 
Christ had to die to forgive our sin, for our guilt to be removed, for our um, conscience to be clear. This is a reference all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 21. After Adam and Eve died, what happened? God killed an animal and covered them with the skin of the animal, which was pointing to Christ covering us with his robe of righteousness. Today, if you are in Christ, his robe of righteousness is on you. His blood was shed to forgive your sin, to cover your sin, to wash them clean and make you a child of God. So hopefully this can help you to understand that God had this will, Christ had to die to make it effective, but also to apply it in your life, and now you can enjoy the benefits in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of the new covenant. Thank you for what you've done for us. Uh, you came into this earth, you died, you rose again, and for our justification. And we want to honor you in everything we do, Lord. We don't want to trample on their feet the precious blood of Christ, like he says in the book of Hebrews. Lord, help us to live day by day, knowing that we are covered with your righteousness. We have forgiveness of sin in you. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son, your son Jesus Christ. And now we can have fellowship with you. In his name I pray. Amen.